Welcome to the Pacific Century, the new podcast from the Hoover Institution at Stanford University on the Indo-Pacific, America, and the fate of the world. I am Michael Misha Oslin, the Williams Griffiths Fellow in Contemporary Asia at the Hoover Institution, and I am joined by my colleague, John, it's not spicy enough if you can breathe, you, a law <laughs> professor from the University of California at Berkeley. Now, John, before we start, uh, I want to make clear what happened last time. Now, this is our second podcast, yes. and our first podcast was actually not even supposed to be a podcast. So we got tons of loyal listener mail, and they all said, John Yu was fantastic. But who was that wooden dummy he was talking about? <laughs> and, and in my own defense, I just want our loyal listeners to, to know that we had actually planned that as a beta. We wanted to see if John and I could actually talk coherently about Asia and the Indo-Pacific for 30 or 45 minutes. And John sounded so good, we decided to put it on air. But I, I was in beta mode. So, uh, so we're gonna, we are, we're gonna, we are we're starting to We're going to date ourselves. That was like Windows 3.0. <laughs> isn't, isn't that the newest? I, I, that's what I have. Uh, so we are we are starting afresh and we are doing a, a follow up to last week because already so much has happened uh, and we are ready to jump into uh, the new future of Asia. And the, the first question I have for John is real simple. John, how did we all get Hanoi so wrong? What happened in Hanoi between President Trump and Kim Jong Un? Well, first, Misha, I'm glad that our beta issue survived the censors at Stanford University and that we're <laughs> now ready for prime time. I guess that was like the pilot. And it's like the uh, – I don't know if you've watched Amazon, but on Amazon, they often roll out a pilot. And then you vote to say, please make more episodes. <laughs> and so we got enough people <laughs> – I'm sure not loyal prime members on Amazon, but enough people said, hey, we like that podcast. Let's do more. So we survived, and now we're in full production. Well, we are, we are, however, definitely not ready for primetime podcasters, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and Misha, he's, the reason he's saying it's not too hot for me is I, he uh, asked me to take him to a, a dive in Chinatown in San Francisco when he moved out west. So I took him all on a tour of the standard sites of San Francisco, and then I took him to a place – uh, a Chinese place. I couldn't read the name of the restaurant, but there was just a gigantic red pepper <laughs> icon <laughs> all over the restaurant. And Misha, to his credit, showing his openness to Asian culture, we walked in and there was a gigantic metal – looked like a, a shield that would be used. I'm sure uh, Victor Davis Hansen thought – would think it was used at the, you know, the Battle of Salamis or something. A gigantic shield filled with bubbling red things. It looked like food from an episode of Star Trek when you have to eat with the Klingons. And Misha, after we sat down, said, I just want whatever that was. And to his credit, after much crying, tearing, sweating, he survived. So that's scarring. Think, Don't forget the scarring. I like to think that's where the genesis, that's where the podcast idea for this started. <laughs> so let me that's go back. Yeah, let's, let's start. Like, yeah, so about Hanoi. So I, I think uh, from a policy perspective, I'm actually quite pleased with the result. Uh, putting aside the pageantry or lack thereof with the meeting itself, putting aside all the people who talk and say the, the it was a failure. We shouldn't have had the summit. In terms of policy, uh, where are we? The United States still has sanctions in place. Uh, the president did not agree to lift them, uh, except in exchange for more complete uh, denuclearization of 
North Korea and a reduction in their missile programs. Uh, there was no end to the Korean War. There was no cease, you know, permanent peace treaty instead of the ceasefire that's in effect now. No agreement to pull back or withdraw any U.S. troops. So in fact, what you have is the status quo. And I, as a policy matter, I think the status quo has been a big improvement uh, in this in this two years than what had been going on uh, in the administration of the last three presidents. You're definitely seeing an effect. Uh, I didn't think it was possible, but you're definitely seeing an effect, it seems to me, uh, the Trump policies on North Korean behavior, and that's all to the good. What, what did you think, Misha? Were you surprised that Trump walked away? No, I mean, this is I, – I think uh, one thing that's good about what Trump has done with foreign policy, he has shaken up kind of the uh, sort of stage-managed aspects of it. So, uh, you know, in traditional State Department practice, you negotiate all of these things first, and then you bring in the right. heads of state when you've got some kind of deal <laughs> pretty much close, and you want them to really be the photo op for the signing of it. And Trump didn't do that at all. Right? And you said this in uh, the last podcast we showed. You know, Trump is disruptive, and, and, and but in some good ways. And maybe the good thing here is he said – Let's put all that, you know, years of bureaucratic negotiating aside. Let's see if we can do a deal. And what was good about it is that he really, I think, showed how willing North Korea really was to negotiate. And uh, I think he showed, look, they were trying to string us along like they've strung us all along before. So I'm not surprised Trump walked. I don't think he needs a win in North Korea uh, to help him get reelected the way he might on some other issues, which I hope we're going to talk about later. Yeah, I, I think. Well, f first, it's it's funny to to see all of the praise that's coming down on him because, of course, the the media take and the the, the you know the instapundit take uh, before all this was that well he's going to cave right he's going to cave to Kim Jong Un because he's so desperate for a deal he'll take anything and it'll be a it'll be a disaster um, and I, I at least you know tried to remind some some folks in some of the media interviews that I did that um, at least. From the beginning, Trump said repeatedly, I'll walk if we don't get a good deal. Now, I'm, I'm talking this was months and months ago, but people forget that. And I also think they don't take him at his word. You know, they just think that word has no meaning. It'll it'll shift depending on his mood and depending on the day. But, you know, he said about both North Korea and China, we'll walk if we don't get a, a good deal and, and also expressed extreme doubt about whether he could get a deal. He, he kept saying, you know, I don't know if we can get a deal, but we're going to try, uh, which is, you know, what every president says. It's just Trump says it in, in his own way. So on the one hand, give him the credit for having lived up to what he told people months ago. Uh, on the other hand, though, I actually was surprised he walked. Uh, I, I think that, um, you know, when you get to this level and and what I believe is Trump's new approach, which is to try to make a personal relationship with Kim Jong-un, it's a lot easier to walk away from the table if you're not at the table, right? I mean, if, if as you said, John, you know, normally this is worked through all the lever levels of diplomacy. You've got the, you know, the, the, the desk chiefs and the deputy assistants and the assistants and the unders and the secretaries, and then it gets to the president. Um, and that, it can break down at any point along those lines, which is really what's happened previously with all of our negotiations with North Korea, because the president has never been personally involved. This time, however, Trump is at the table. And uh, I think it takes a lot more fortitude, <clears throat> pardon me, it takes a lot more fortitude 
to actually walk away from the table when you're there and there's no buffer that uh, there's no diplomatic buffer. It, you know, it, it's clearly going to be seen as your call, whether it's interpreted as a failure or a um, uh, or a success. Um, that also said, though, I don't think that this, of course, means the end of Trump's outreach to to Kim Jong Un. Um, I wrote a, a piece for The Wall Street Journal last week that that said, you know, he's basically instituting a revolution in North Korean policy, which is to bypass everything that's been done before, uh, largely give up the idea of denuclearization. That's, you know, that's the debatable part. But I think I think there's a lot of evidence for that. But more importantly, create this new relationship with Kim Jong Un. And that is going to be the lever, the mechanism that you're going to use to prevent war. Uh, war will not come because you've reached an agreement. War will not come because you've created instead a relationship with Kim Jong-un. So he really put that at risk by walking away. And uh, we'll have to see what happens now. I would say really the ball is in the North Koreans' court. You know, what they usually do is go back to some sort of uh, um, provocative action. And a lot of this, however, hinges. You'll you'll remember that Trump said, look, they haven't done a missile test. They haven't done a nuclear test. A lot of it hinges on whether that holds. So, John, you've been in the White House. You've been involved in, in a lot of these things. What what should we look for to try to understand the next possible steps uh, that, that the American side might take to keep this dialogue going? No, I, it was, you know, I was really struck by that piece. I'm glad you mentioned it, the one you wrote in the Wall Street Journal. I hope people get a chance to read it um, because I think what we have a better sense now of – is what the North Koreans are really willing to negotiate over. Um, I agree with you. What you said there is that it's very unlikely that North Korea will ever really give up uh, nuclear weapons. And and this also comes from, you know, I go to Korea fairly often, uh, meet with <clears throat> people there uh, in the government and outside. They don't really think Kim's going to give up nuclear weapons either, given how many resources that tiny country, tiny poor countries poured into it, that program, for so many decades. Uh, they see it as ultimate uh, guarantee of their regime's survivability. So if you're the White House, you know, sitting back in Washington now after uh, the summit did not produce a result, what do you look for next? So you're going to look for other things North Korea might be willing to do that are going to fall short of denuclearization, uh, that, such as Although they just went back on this today, we saw stories in today's papers that North Korea is sort of rebuilding some of the facilities that they destroyed or at least seemed to destroy shut down like a satellite launching facility. So what you would expect, I would think, and this will be what we have to then think of as uh, to respond to is North Korea saying we're going to – we will close down a smaller facility. We will agree uh, to not launch any ballistic missiles. Uh, And so the thing, as you say, Misha, I think you're right. The onus is going to be on North Korea to see what they might propose um, because they still think their strategy is still let's see how much we can get out of the Americans. Let's see how how much in the sanctions we can get reduced in exchange for this small thing or that small thing. I think the difficult thing for our friends in the State Department and the National Security Council is what are we going to offer in exchange? Because uh, that's what we don't know. You know, Trump walked away, and so the status quo is sanctions are in full effect. 
clearly the North Koreans want some kind of reduction in sanctions. I bet they really want reductions in sanctions, you know, reductions in the sanctions on the ability to move money around and luxury goods because that's what they need uh, to keep the, the upper echelon of their regimes happy and cooperative. Um, but we have to ask, is it really worth it to get temporary suspensions of ballistic missile programs, of space satellite launches, uh, potential closures of some parts of the Yangbyon facility in exchange? I'm not sure. You know, Trump might say, look, the, the maximum pressure approach is working. Let's not lift any of it and see whether we can see how far we can get. Yeah, I, I think um, you're right, which is is really another way of, of sort of saying we're back at square one. I mean, you know, this is this is what we have been arguing over with the North Koreans uh, from from the very beginning, back in 1994 or so. So it, it seems at least there's there's sort of two ways this could go. One would be having the failure of Hanoi and certainly not wanting to have another failure. And I, and I would assume, by the way, both leaders are going to be a little warier of meeting for a third time if they haven't agreed to something again, though uh, to, to hedge that a little bit, it's always good for Kim Jong-un to be seen yeah. with the president of the United States. I was going to so, say, Kim will meet for – Yeah, Kim, he'll probably, he'll probably got some go. Good, yeah, he got some good – he never gets any good furball now. <laughs> you know, now I want to try some you know, Indonesian fried rice. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he canceled the lunch, right? I don't think they did their lunch. So he's, he's, all, he's all in on like the third time so he can actually get a good meal. But um, – so the, the the one thing would be to go back the, the regular diplomatic route, right, which would be, all right, let's kick this down to the actual working levels, um, let them figure out what is or is not possible, which really, again, puts you right back where the Clinton, the Bush and the Obama administrations were um, and just see how that plays out or – if you're Trump, maybe you want to double down and you want to or triple down in this case and you 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 are going to push it again at at those highest levels. Another option, which may be a sort of inertial option, is to do what the Obama people did. Remember, they had one very quickly failed, very limited agreement called the Leap Day Agreement with North Korea uh, that was broken in 2000. 12, I think I'm positive it was 12, but for some reason, 10 is also popping up in my head. In any case, 2012. Uh, and as soon as that failed, uh, they didn't do anything anymore. Uh, and so you had what they called this policy of strategic patience over eight years. But really, that meant that meant nothing was going on. So there is an inertia question that you could suddenly say, well, let's just wait and see because because the president doesn't want to go back to the normal way of doing things, which would be this this sort of endless diplomatic discussion. And yet he's not ready to commit to a third meeting because that didn't go anywhere the last time. Maybe we just wait and see what happens. The problem there, I think, is that you, you really give the initiative then to the North Koreans and they're the yes. ones who will decide what they're going to do. So I think we're, we're pretty much at a, at, a, at a phase of saying we have to we honestly have to wait and see. It, it, do the North Koreans continue to act well, do they act? Do they act responsibly? Um, does the Trump team come up with some sort of magic bullet, or does the bad news? And you, you, I think, pointed out before, we're getting new media reports of of continued North Korean work on on nuclear facilities. Um, does the bad news sort of develop to a point where uh, again a, a breaking comes about and we're just we're just back to phase zero? So uh, the point is, stay tuned. That's why we're doing the podcast. We're going to keep talking uh, about all of this. But North Korea is not the only thing that's been going on 
in Asia. And in fact, in the uh, week or so since we did our podcast, we last time talked about the uh, the U.S.-China trade war and uh, the negotiations that were going on and talked about who needed it more and what it might look like. Well, lo and behold, we got news uh, late last week and over the weekend that uh, the two sides seem to be edging towards an agreement, uh, which would be uh, eagerly watched and is being eagerly watched by equities markets around the world, uh, by manufacturing firms, by importers and exporters and and the like. So, John, what uh, what are you hearing about the trade talks? What, what do you think might be happening? And 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 to be honest, does it really matter? <laughs> this is uh, really interesting because, of course, I think this actually maybe unlike uh, the ultimate resolution of the North Korea thing in the next two years, I do think that President Trump's uh, re-election does in some part turn on what kind of trade deal he reaches as China, with China. And then I think the other countries, you, you, know, you know, NAFTA, EU, uh, Trans-Pacific, that's all going to fall into place afterwards. Uh, but it's not clear from the deal that's being floated in the press whether uh, what they're talking about is going to solve the real, I think, structural problems with the U.S.-China trade relationship. So if you look at the reports, it sounds like China is going to commit to buying a certain amount of American products, and those would probably be primarily agriculture. Right? And those are the areas of uh, the country that produce agriculture, the ones that you know, most supported President Trump in the last elections. I think President Trump would be very happy about that. Um, and this is where, in exchange, the United States would lift the tariffs uh, that it's imposed on Chinese, almost all Chinese goods, which were scheduled uh, to go up to, I think, 20 percent, which is a fairly high, you know, fairly high tariff on Chinese exports to the U.S. Now, the problem, I think, is that that's not really uh, how we want to approach the U.S.-China trade relationship. This really smacks of what we call managed trade in the international trade, where you're just like – where the governments come in and sort of set quotas on how much each one is going to buy from the other, which actually cuts against the whole point of international trade relationships, this theory of comparative advantage where we should – be making and selling the things to China, which we are best at doing, even though we could cut ourselves off from the world and make everything for ourselves, that is extremely inefficient. What we should do is make and sell to them the things that we are best at, where we have the comparative advantage, and we should be buying from China the things that they produce better than we do. That's better for both countries. So kind of setting gross amounts of purchases and certain products you know, really cuts against that idea. And the second point um, is it really doesn't solve, I think, the real source of what's going to be the structural imbalance in the future, uh, which is uh, China, unlike us, targeting certain industries where they're just not going to permit competition, uh, pull, put up huge barriers, and then essentially steal intellectual property from the United States to give itself an advantage. So if you know they're they're made in China – program targets several high technology areas where they want to be the dominant player right you know if, if international trade and free markets work the government doesn't get to decide where you're going to be a dominant player the markets decide whether you're going to be a dominant player and we've seen we're starting to see as we talked about in our last podcast the u.s indictments of huawei now we've seen now a factual track record 
of you know China's probably their their number one uh, you know most uh, cutting edge dominant company got to where it was by stealing a lot of American high technology. That's the I think that is the real problem. And so to me, all this managed trade, strategic, I mean managed trade, you know, quotas, dropping tariffs, it's not going to really matter unless we solve this bigger problem, the long-term problem, which is how do we deal with uh, China trying to shut off its markets, trying to steal our innovation in order to dominate the products in the high technology world for the coming century. Yeah, it's interesting uh, we, when you talk about, and that's a it's a great um, overview of, of uh, I think of what we face. There's a couple of um, interesting parallels and also a couple of interesting developments. I mean, one of the, one of the parallels, of course, when you talk about the top down trade model, uh, is how wildly unsuccessful it was. With Japan, yeah, I was going to ask you exactly uh, and, that. Yeah, because well, that we did this with run. Japan, right? <laughs> yeah, in the short and look, I mean, it, it, both, it, it, and this is why you know I think you really and, I, and I'm I'm trying not to speak too parochially as a historian, but you know you really cannot forget history. You know, I'm, uh, both China and Japan benefited from perhaps globally and historically unique moments when each began to integrate economically with the world. For Japan, um, I'm talking about after World War II, not the, not the Meiji era in the 19th century, but after World War II, the United States had just established the, the, the current system that we live under, the, the global free trade architecture, whatever you want to call it, GATT, and uh, the, ultimately the World Trade Organization and um, the, uh, um, the World Bank and, and all of the institutions uh, that had create the world trade environment that we live in today. And we wanted Japan to be rebuilt after the war. Of course, it had been devastated during the war. And and so we essentially gave it full access to our markets and the world. And Japan took full advantage of that and got a real boost uh, by uh, doing certain production during the Korean War and, and, and also the Vietnam War. Uh, when that comparative advantage uh, environmentally, if I can put it that way, disappeared starting in the, the the mid to late 1980s. Japan also dramatically slowed down. But that slowdown was exacerbated by this top-down government-managed planning uh, that had seemed brilliant in the 1950s and 60s and maybe even, maybe even the 70s, but by the 1980s was woefully out of step with the, the broader free trade movements. And so you think about um, Japan's failure, uh, if, if anyone out there is old enough to remember the Betamax, right? Japan's bet on the Betamax. Yes, or, I remember. Uh, Super the Didn't we all? I mean, still yeah, superior better. quality, let's be yeah. honest. Um, I think I think my family still has it somewhere. Um, we're hoping VHS for comeback, just, right? VHS yeah. was a joke. It was a flash in the pan. Um <laughs> So, uh, so there's the Betamax. There was supercomputing. There were uh, plasma TVs versus LCDs. There were a lot of places where Japan made the wrong choices. Uh, you know, some areas it didn't, uh, especially in the auto industry. But the point is that Japan benefited from a unique period. Uh, when that period ended, it was uh, it found itself at a disadvantage, and on top of that was a failed you know, sort of government industrial policy. Now look to China. China also benefiting from entering. A global trading system, uh, particularly in the 1990s, uh, after the Cold War, the expansion of uh, trade networks throughout what had been, uh, you know, former communist bloc nations, uh, the sort of triumph of liberal internationalism, uh, again, us opening up our markets completely. China 
benefited enormously uh, from that. And what we're seeing, and in fact, with the, the figures just released this week, uh, or the targets, China's economy has has matured. It has gone through this massive growth phase. Um, most economists I know don't even you know trust the official figures, but the official figures that were just released yesterday, the target figures are now down to six percent. And and you know three years ago we were talking about ten percent growth, or, or four years ago we were talking about ten percent growth. So again, keeping the history in mind of, of both what is the particular period in which a country gets this enormous benefit as well as the policies that they adopted and you can at least look at the Japanese policies that, um, a, that, yeah, that were failures. Point. There's, one, there's one big difference I think in the history, um, which I – although maybe not with the post-Meiji period but the post-World War II period is that uh, after World War II – uh, actually, it was in the U.S. and our strategic interest for Japan to become a rich country. Yes. Remember, one of the amazing turns uh, in history was uh, one of the, you know, could be one of the defining events of the 20th century, though. I bet we don't study it that much anymore in college was the fall of China to the communists. Once that happened, you know, we put aside all these plans to, uh, you know, kind of demilitarize Japan and make it not a normal country and instead – uh, I think uh, this is another one of the brilliant insights that Kennan had, Kennan had was we have to rehabilitate Japan, make it a normal nation, and make it the hub of our defense in the Pacific. And Japan cooperated. So uh, you know, we actually kind of had an interest. We didn't, even though we complained throughout this whole period about Japanese imports and uh, loss of manufacturing jobs, this actually was to our uh, strategic advantage in the Pacific for Japan to become a wealthy country and you know, we were the ones who were constantly pushing Japan not to be pacifist, to spend more money on its military, to you know, consider <clears throat> creative interpretations of their no-war clause in their constitution, to uh, get more involved in multinational defense. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it might not be the same with China. You know, we may not – we – you know, it, it might be <clears throat> excuse me, better for the world if China became a wealthier country, if it became a more stable country. Uh, and a more cooperative country. But one thing I worry about is they pile up uh, wealth and it doesn't go towards making them a regular country where they create a normal middle class and they build a normal infrastructure. Instead, they seem intent on President Xi to become a challenging, rising, you know, what we call in strategy, a revisionist power, right? One that wants to upset a relatively stable set of rules and governing systems in East Asia that's been good for everybody out there. Right? Asia has risen uh, economically and millions if not billions of people have done – have had much better lives because of the peace that we've arranged there. And China seems to want to throw, you know, throw the whole t gaming table over. Uh, so I'm not sure – I think that might be a big difference that might cause us – even though I, you know, I'm sort of taking back my free trade pitch in the beginning, maybe we ought to be a little bit more worried about them than we were about Japan. Well, I, I think I think for sure. Although, uh, again, to keep with the historical analogy, your your point is exactly almost uh, about Japan that we thought it was in our interest is exactly what we were told, of course. Uh, for decades with the China relationship, which was first that it was, you know, vital to the Cold War, you know, uh, that the triangular Kissingerian conception of the U.S.-China and the Soviet Union. Uh, and then after the Cold War, uh, and I think we talked about this a little bit last time, you know, we were essentially promised that uh, a China that was brought into the WTO, a China that was fully integrated into the global economy 
was in our strategic interest because it would become, first of all, it would start playing by the rules. It would find a stake in this international system. And the, the, the most extreme hopes is that at some point in time, somewhere down the line, it would become uh, more liberal and not a full democracy, of course, but it would liberalize in some ways. And we were told that by presidents and, and pundits and the like. And I think we're at this point of reassessing that. I think that that's clear. Now, there were the, the question is, when did you see the light, right? Is is it in the past six months or year? Uh, as I would say, many on the Democratic side have suddenly started saying, oh, we, you know, we, 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 we were wrong. We didn't get it. We misinterpreted it. Or were there warning signs much earlier? And people were trying to say, look, before it gets bad, let's try to fix this stuff. And China's weaker and it's not as antagonistic. And let's, you know, let's, let's see what we can do. And all of that was ignored. So we find ourselves with this this um this challenge now part of the problem of course is now people make it into a huge uh, a huge monster and and uh now everybody's on one side of the boat and and the boat could tip over and that that worries me but the chinese are starting to get the message so one thing i wanted to mention you had mentioned john the made in china 2025 program where china uh, basically has set the goal for itself of becoming the world manufacturing and r&d leader in information technology, particularly AI. It wants to be the world's leader in AI and robotics and uh, aerospace, mm -hmm. uh, all these different types of things. They actually have a, a list of, of, of these areas that they're going to conquer. Um, now, I think the policy is still there, but they've dropped the rhetoric. They, they understood that the rhetoric was alienating the world, that it was actually starting to cause more problems for them. And so uh, they no longer talk about made in China 2025. In fact, it was absent from uh, the, uh, the the economic plans that were just laid out the other day uh, in Beijing by Li Keqiang, who is the uh, who is the premier. Um, so there is there is a um, I, I think some I, I don't want to say moderation on the part of China, but I think that they get that uh, at least from the optics, if we can put it that way, that wonderful Washington term that there's there is opposition <laughs> to their professed desire to become dominant because countries don't trust how they're going to use that power, right? What's the Spider-Man line? You know, you have to use great power wisely, something like that. Great power um, comes great responsibility. <laughs> that's, that's, that's fantastic. Uncle Ben, thank you. And, um, you know, and, and, China is not the Peter Parker of, of, of the geopolitical uh, scene, you know, the, so the, my point is that, um, Again, I think we're at a couple of different inflection points. Um, the, the, whether the U.S. gets a deal, of course, the, the the key point is will China live up to it? And we've had lots of promises about lots of things in the past that they've never lived up to. But all of that, I would say, is when China was was um, was waxing and maybe not waning. And and I think that the Chinese are increasingly concerned about the waning aspect of their of their power, and so that might might cause a change in behavior. One thing I do want to mention before we uh, before we sign off about this is, uh, as all of you uh, loyal listeners know, Hoover is filled, the Hoover Institution is filled with fantastic economists. Uh, and I was talking with one just yesterday at lunch. I won't use his name because I didn't ask him if I could use his comments uh, in the podcast. But he um, he schooled me a little bit in the economics of this and said, look, first of all, um, our exports to China, meaning U.S. exports to China, are a, just a tiny fraction overall of, of what U.S. exports are. Now, 
uh, they are our largest bilateral trading partner, but it's only about one percent if I got his numbers right of of exports. And and uh, similarly, for China, the U.S. Uh, U.S. is only maybe four uh, percent of its exports. So a deal or a trade war, however you want to look at it, either way, really ultimately doesn't have that much overall economic impact. It does not have that much macroeconomic impact. Uh, And so whereas I and others have been going around, uh, and I think in some ways rightfully saying China can't withstand a trade war as well as the United States, and certainly politically uh, has more issues, and I I would stick with that from the economic side. Um, the two countries might well be able to just trundle along this path uh, for for a while. Um, yes, I, I, I just – maybe a little yeah. uh, addition on that is I think that's right that um, you know, the reason why uh, you know, there is that trading relationship is because of this disparity. You know, we're very good at making certain high-tech products that China wants to buy and we have a lot of information-based products and services that China wants to buy. And China's really good at making really cheap plastic things <laughs> that Americans want to buy at Walmart. And you know, even though you put up these tariffs, there's still the the economics of that don't change significantly. So I just, you know, there, as you said, there were these figures released today, and they show that even with the tariffs in place, U.S. Exp- U.S. imports from China went up yeah. <laughs> because you know that, and that's because of these larger macro factors. You're talking about the dollar is strong. That means Chinese products are cheaper. The U.S. economy is growing. So when the U.S. economy grows, we tend to buy more stuff from abroad. So you, know, you could put these tariffs on, but the, as you say, these larger uh, macro things are definitely causing much more of a consequence – causing much more consequences. Than tar- the other thing I would just throw out there is the tariffs are not themselves going to fundamentally alter – uh, the economic relationships tariffs are in fact harmful to ourselves. Tariffs are a tax. You know who pays the tariffs? American consumers do. It's not like China itself actually pays money for the tariff. And so they are, I think, a very is your kind of form of self-destructive policy. And I thought we'd realize that after the years of the Smoot-Hawley tariff in the Great Depression, that tariff, you know, imposing tariffs on each other's trade is just is is <clears throat> creates a self-destructive spiral. The last point, this goes back, I wanted to ask you this while you were talking, I didn't get a chance about the Japan analogy. You suggested, and I think it's true that historians now, economic historians look back at the Japanese managed trade approach as a failure once Japan got to, you know, sort of out of being a less developed country and became a mature economy. But then do you think that this made in China 2025 idea is actually going to be harmful to China in the long run. And in a way, if we're worried about China being competitive about uh, economically, about China being a, a rival strategically, maybe we should be happy they still believe in managed trade. <laughs> like, yeah, go for China made in 2025. You know, you look at some of the uh, things that they want to dominate. You know, where you and I are, we're worried about things that have kind of a military application like AI and robotics. But they've also got on there green energy, you know, you know, new materials, ocean engineering. I'd be like, throw as much money down those holes as you can, China. That would be great to see them get like many 
Solyndra's dotting the Chinese landscape. You know, so maybe the made in China, we shouldn't be so afraid of it. Maybe it's a sign that, again, like you suggested with Japan, this managed economic approach that they're still wedded to is actually going to stick them in neutral, if not actually positively harm them yeah, as they go farther. It's a great question. And um, I, I think uh, – I think the difference between Japan and China is that uh, Japan and China's – by the way, China has studied Japan very carefully. There are two countries that China has studied very, very carefully. On the economics, it studied Japan and on the politics, it studied the Soviet Union. Because it wanted to be like Japan, and I, I hope they want get to be like the Soviet Union. <laughs> I yeah. hope they turn out to be like both countries. In the well, end. right, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, look, Japan is, you know, even after what we're coming on thirty years, believe it or not, of of, uh, of popping a bubble and and so called, yeah, stagnation. Japan's still the world's third largest economy, which either says a lot about Japan or not a lot about the rest of the world. I don't know, but um, <laughs> the. Uh, um, uh, the, the Japanese really proved themselves not to be uh, very nimble. And once and, and, and I, I hate to get into this. I don't want to get into it too much. But I think some of it was a sort of structural, cultural reason about how you want to have uh, uh, you want to have a lot of consensus before you move forward. So once you reach that consensus, it's actually hard then to, to, to shift the boat very quickly. China, I don't think, has as much of that restraint. I'm sure there are, are a lot of cases that could be adduced to show us that, yes, it, it is not nimble and it create and it, it, you know, it misses the boat and so on and so forth. But I think that in in these broad areas that it's identified uh, and you brought up at the top of the podcast, you know, that it steals the technology. It, it does any – look, all countries try to steal technology, but, you know, China is particularly good at it and has been particularly dependent on it. It therefore can switch much more quickly when it identifies something that uh, looks promising. And unlike Japan, by the way, I, I would say certainly – uh, in gross numbers, not surprisingly, but I would say probably even comparatively, China is much more integrated with the global research and development environment uh, than than Japan was. Japan was a, was um, pretty insular and and sort of autarkic about this. And what China does, it's and and this is a problem, can, sends its students out and its military officers out to our best research institutes and gets whatever it can, and then and then sends it back home. So again, my point is. They're they're more aware, I think, of where things are heading, and therefore can shift more quickly in an in a top down decision making process to say, okay, this is working out for the Americans or promising. Let's try to try to dominate it. Now that just means you have to have good decision makers, uh, good decision makers at the top. But uh, the the made in twenty twenty five. I don't think it's going to be a negative for them, John. To get back to your question, what I think is actually just going to happen is. Um, it, it won't. It just won't change the world uh, the way they think it will, or, or or the way they they tout it as doing. I think same thing with the One Belt One Road initiative, and we should actually probably have a show on that at some point. Yeah. And bring bring on some folks to talk about One Belt One Road. Yeah, but you know, I'm very skeptical about One Belt One Road. Not I am that, too. I, I hope they waste a lot of money building exactly. you know ports, you know ports in Africa. <laughs> no, exactly right. And and they're doing that. And it's not that. By the way, it's not that it doesn't have some level of benefit for them. It does. But uh, there is an enormous amount of waste. Uh, there's an enormous amount of resentment. And the idea that they're going to create a, a new Eurasian uh, political economic 
uh, network, you know, nexus that's centered on China, I think is just going to going to fall flat. And, and made in China 2025, I have I have the same sense. Uh, but again, it's something that that uh, we need to watch as we go forward on these uh, on the political negotiations. I would bet, John, by the uh, I'll bet you a, a bowl of pho that the next <laughs> time we meet. Uh, to do a podcast, there will be some type of agreement between the U.S. and China uh, oh, yes, politically. Uh, we'll, we'll have to see exactly what it is, and I'll and I'll and I'll bet you a side dish of one of those hot peppers you served me <laughs> that will have no news about anything uh, going forward with North Korea. So, if you're willing to take those bets, we'll uh, we'll close out the podcast here. We will invite people to visit our site. Which is on uh, it's on the Hoover Institution site. Unfortunately, I actually did not pull it up in front of me. But if you just go to the Hoover Institution site, which is Hoover.org, uh, and then go to uh, just type in Pacific Century, we'll come up. Send in your comments, send in your thoughts, send in ideas for future shows and for guests you'd like to hear. Uh, and John, unless you have a, a, a final word, uh, this will be Misha Oslin signing off for John Yu and me and the Hoover Institution. Bye-bye. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.